Almighty. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, wherever you are, we pray that you're doing well. Uh, shalom, shanti, salam, and peace be each and every one of you. This is our third One Love podcast. And today we are very, very honored and privileged to be talking to a gentleman, Mike, and we'll be hearing his story. I am joined with, <clears throat> with our wonderful uh, chaplain, Julian Martin, our co-host, <laughs> and who is a chaplain as well as a Salvation Army Hafe House, and we've been working together for those who have been incarcerated and helping their reintegration to society. So without further ado, I would like to say welcome to Chaplain Julian. <clears throat> Thank you, Habib. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good middle of the night, whatever time it is whenever you're listening to this podcast. Um, I hope that you have a, a coffee in hand because I know I sure do. Um, just happy to, to be here and um, really excited to be catching up with my friend Mike. We go back many, many years. Uh, we met actually in prison. We met at a, at a chapel and the chaplain there um, introduced us and uh, eventually he did actually come to the, my halfway house and we, we kept in touch. We love books, we love coffee, and we love talking. <laughs> so without chatting too much, I'll hand it over to Mike. Mike, thank you so much in advance for your time today. It's my pleasure to be here, Julia. Um, and, and like we were talking about your shirt earlier that says, pray, coffee, repeat. And I said, I would probably have coffee, pray, repeat. Um, I think the, the things that we like together, I think you've got that wrong too, or in the wrong order, at least because you put talking last. Um, I think that should ought to be first with coffee, a very, very, very close second. And yes, I have one beside me too. Awesome. And, and if okay. I get distracted here, I will apologize in advance. There's a cat lying at my feet and she's looking at me like I'm crazy because I'm talking to my computer. <laughs> well, that's very human of you, Mike. Uh, so tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, what was your childhood like and what was your story uh, when you were incarcerated? My childhood was one of, uh, one might call it an adventure. My father worked for the Ontario government, and that's as specific as I plan on getting, I hope. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and we traveled a lot in the province as he kept getting moved around. I spent the first 12 years of my life in Barrie. Actually, I was born in Huntsville, and we moved from there when I was three weeks old, I'm told. I don't remember. Um, I spent the first 12 years of my life in Barrie. I then went to Midland, where I spent seven months then we went to Orangeville, where I was there for two and a half years. Where did I go after Orangeville? Then we went to Mississauga, and I spent two years there. Yes, two years there, a year in Niagara Falls, and then back to Mississauga. I went to four different high schools in five years wow. in, two in three different cities. And the joke that sometimes people try on me is, couldn't find a high school that would keep you, huh? <laughs> So when I lived in Mississauga, we uh, the first time I went to grade uh, nine and no, sorry, 10 and 11 there. And then when we came back to Mississauga, I finished grade 13 in a different high school because we were on the other side of town. Um, that's kind of my background from, from my youth. Uh, my parents taught me very, very well. And as I said at my parole hearing, and I said the same thing in court, my straying from the path had nothing to do with my upbringing. They were exactly the last people I could blame for what happened to me. There's only one person to blame. That's me. Um, took me a little while to admit that to myself. 
Right. But I did. Um, I ended up getting a sentence of four and a half years. I was extremely fortunate to end up at a minimum security institution as opposed to anything medium or maximum. Um, I only saw the inside of a maximum facility when I was at Millhaven. Every federal prisoner goes there for a minimum of usually a maximum, sorry, of six months, four to six months while they evaluate them to determine if they're suitable for medium, minimum, or maximum security. Uh, I was saw the inside of a medium facility because I was next door to one, and that's where the doctor and the dentist were. So anytime I needed any care like that, I ended up having to go to an inside of that facility. And boy, what a difference. Um, it, was, it was literally night and day from a medium facility where the fences are as high as a normal farmer's fence and you could climb over it if you wanted to, um, not recommended because that then you got to be a guest at the medium facility. Um, <laughs> and it was a long-term guest too, I might add. Um, that's all I can think to say off the top of my head, although I'm perfectly free and willing to share other information should anything come from any of the questions that either one of you pose to me. Lovely. And you seem to have a sense of humor. Is that what took you to, uh, helped you along your journey while you were incarcerated? Yes, absolutely. Definitely. Um, I think my sense of humor was one of the things that I don't think Julian put that, put that on our list of things that we get along with. But my sense of humor needed to be checked considerably when I was in prison because I learned that some inmates don't have the same sense of humor that I do. And uh, I learned... I won't say the hard way because I never got uh, physically abused while I was in prison by either my fellow inmates or, this, or the, uh, the correctional officers, and I'm grateful for that. But my sense of humor has got me out of some tough times. That's for darn sure. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Mike, I'm wondering if you could speak yeah, go ahead. a little bit about um, your involvement with the, with the chapel and chaplaincy and maybe just about how that... Um, what that was like for you while you were inside because I know that you were heavily involved with that. I, I really was. Um, they encourage you and I and I say that with quotation marks around it. They insist that you get a job when you're in prison and there are several options. I spent oh I don't know five or six months I think being the laundry clerk in the stores section. Stores being where the inmates would go to get their uh, cleaning supplies or their clothing and things of that nature. I ended up in the laundry room for months and I started to go to chapel uh, my first week at that facility. I also went to chapel at the uh, at Millhaven when I was there going through the assessment process. No such critter existed when I was in the Ontario correctional system waiting for my court case to wield its way through uh, the system. That took 10 months and that was on a guilty plea. Um, I shudder to think how long I would have been there had I decided to fight the charges, but I certainly wasn't in a position to do that for several reasons, number one of which I knew that it was a waste of the court's time, my time, didn't want to put anybody else through that because I owned up to what I did. Not proud of it, for goodness sake, but I certainly owned up to it. Uh, one day while I was doing laundry in the laundry room, the chaplain approached me, um, her assistant who was an inmate was moving on to somewhere was moving on to something else. Um, if I remember, if memory serves, he was actually getting out on parole and she asked me if I'd be interested in being her clerk. Um, 
I jumped at the job for no other reason. I was tired of getting dishpan hands from doing other people's laundry. And um, I spent the next, oh, goodness me, year, year and a half, I think, as the, uh, the clerk to the chaplain. You get to meet all of the inmates when you do that. You liaise with them. You interact with them. Um, I was there every Sunday working, getting things ready for the on-site uh, Catholic mass that was held. Um, also in the evening for the uh, non-denominational service, got to meet some absolutely wonderful people, uh, both in, in the two Catholic priests that came to the prison to conduct their services and also the, uh, the ministerial staff of which there were two or three, the Salvation Army was certainly one of them, uh, that came in to uh, offer their services to the inmates and um, their guidance, their counsel and helping them connect with whatever needs that they may have had. Um, one of the expressions I heard when I was in prison was that a lot of inmates find God. I don't like that expression because that sounds to me like God's lost. He's not lost. We all were. Um, I never found God when I was in prison, found my way back to him, but I never found him. He was there waiting for me. And, um, I'm grateful for that because I used to sing in the choir when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13. Then my voice changed and that ended that. And moving around a lot didn't help either when I was a, when I was a child because I'd have to get used to a new church, a new minister, a new choir master. Um, but I pursued that for as long as I could. And um, then I quit going to church for some reason. My parents made me go to church every Sunday when I was a kid, and I used the term made extremely loosely uh, because I enjoyed it. I went to Sunday school. I sang in the choir. I sat in as many church services as I could. So reconnecting with my faith and with the Lord uh, when I got in prison was um, refreshing, eye-opening, peaceful. Wouldn't have got through it without it. And it was actually my cellmate in the provincial system that got me hooked on doing Bible study courses because he was doing them. Um, right. The day that he told me he was, I, I think I probably laughed at him because he would have been about the last person I thought was doing that. But mm -hmm. I learned very quickly that uh, he was serious. He didn't um, insist I join in the Bible study stuff, which was all correspondence, but he certainly made it made the path to it easier, gave me the right connections. And I did Bible study, the, the correspondence stuff, right up until the day I left um, the prison system to go on parole. And then very I met the lovely Julianne and her services. Of course, very impressive. Micah was wondering if you had certain challenges while you were incarcerated and how you overcome them. I had several. Um, without getting into specifics, let's just say my background and why I was there caused its own challenges. Uh, the prison has a hierarchy system amongst uh, inmates. Ironically, um, murderers have the highest standing amongst prisoners. Um, because their logic is, and I, and, I, and I stress the term their logic because I don't buy into it myself, probably because I wasn't one, thankfully. But their logic is that at least a murderer faced their victim and um, took care of things themselves. Um, child abusers, um, 
sex offenders of any description were sort of the bottom of the rung. The only thing that was lower than that was somebody that would um, grasp was the expression they used, but ratted them out to uh, the prison officials. I wasn't one of those, but um, my age didn't help me at all either because I was 57, 58 when I went into the prison system. Um, older than a lot, younger than a very few. Um, I got tired of hearing the word pops. That's what they used to call me. I hated that because I, I was in age denial. I still am. I don't want to admit I'm as old as I am. Um, okay. there, so I there wouldn't are say Mike. Pardon me? I wouldn't say Pops Mike. <laughs> no. Even some of the correctional officers referred me to that until I told them I didn't like it and why. And then they stopped doing it, which I thought was very nice. Um, so the challenges really were getting along with everybody. You try to keep your head down, get through things as well as you can without ruffling anybody's feathers, both the uniform-wearing correctional staff and your fellow inmates. Because when you're in a medium or sorry, a minimum facility, you're literally living with anywhere from six to eight other people in a house, um, literally a house. And if you don't get along with them, life is going to be miserable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mike, I wonder if you could speak to, since you were in the chapel, um, how, how easily accessible do you think chaplaincy or, or, or faith type resources are for folks who do not uh, follow the Christian path? There was an imam that came into the church, into the chapel um, regularly. The Muslims had their own um, room where they could go for their daily prayers. And I use daily loosely because I understand that there are more than, you know, it's more than once a day, but they had a, a room that they could go to was that was away from all the other inmates. The only people that were allowed in there were, were their, their peers, their, their fellow Muslims. Um, Catholics obviously were well looked after with their Sunday service and, and the, I would give up my office on, I, I call it my office. It was my workspace, but it had doors. So it was an office. Um, I would give up my workspace on Sundays so that the, the priest could hold confession for his, for his flock. Um, the non-faith believing people could get access to the chaplaincy, the chaplains, me, uh, any of the services, just as easy as those that were believing. Believing wasn't a criteria to uh, be able to sit down with a chaplain and talk about your concerns, your worries, uh, your path. So uh, it certainly made it easier as an inmate to approach the chaplain if you were faith-based because you expected to be uh, accepted and, and met with open arms. And I think a lot of the people that I met there that weren't faith-based um, were kind of shocked when they realized that they were treated the same as everybody else as far as getting access to the services that were offered. So have you written anything about your story and published it? No. Um, the only published thing I do, and it's not publishing, the only, the only thing I talk about my story, I have a few extremely close friends in the community that, that I live in. Every one of the really close friends that I have know of my past, both before and after, before, during and after incarceration. And I, my line that I use when I meet people that find out, certainly it's not something I advertise, but people find out and I, it disturbs me that they find out only from the perspective that why do they want to live in my past when I don't want to? Mm. 
but people find out, they ask me questions and, and my expression is the same from day one when I got out to today, if I should meet somebody. Ask me anything you want about what caused me to be incarcerated and my path from being incarcerated. And I will tell you the truth. I'll answer your question. You may not like it, but it'll be the truth. So that's the only publishing I do. Um, I spend more time reading other people's publications because I'm an avid reader. Um, I'm also a little anal when it comes to keeping track of things. And I can tell you how many pages I've read while I was incarcerated and how many pages I've read since I got out. So, can you share that number with us, Mike? Um, <laughs> okay, fine. Um, Get ready. <laughs> since from the day that I was incarcerated to today, 198,000 pages. Wow. Um, since I got out and back into the free world, if you will, which includes being at, at the halfway house, because you're almost totally free there. There are restrictions, mm -hmm. but you can wander the streets of the community um, at will, as long as you're abiding by whatever terms of parole you have, of course. Um, while I was there, the number, well, sorry, while, since I got out and halfway houses to today, we're looking at about 120,000 pages. And that's in the last, where are we? 2021. So it's in the last seven years. And the balance of that total was while I was incarcerated. Thank goodness the all the facilities I was in had decent libraries. The federal system is much better because you could actually go and pick your books. Uh, the provincial system, you get what they give you to read. Met some interesting authors, let me tell you. And then at the halfway house, you have to read horrible books if the chaplain thinks, hey, let's read this together. Oh, she had a, she had a book club, Habib, and let me tell you, uh, not only did you have to read them, but there were skill testing questions when we meet to talk about the book. And if you didn't, if you hadn't read it and you were faking it, you got found out in a big hurry because you couldn't answer, you couldn't answer the questions. And Julianne still refers books to me. I've got one. The last one you referred to me was, um, oh, my goodness, the uh, the boxing trainer. I can't remember his name. Um, I still haven't read it. I've got it. Still haven't got into that one yet, but I will. Okay, now I know her trick. That's why <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Mike, if you're okay, can you share with us what you think uh, got you in, incarcerated? And do you think that uh, uh, people who get incarcerated face systemic racism? In my experience, as far as systemic racism is concerned, and unlike some people, I'm not going to sit here and say to you, I've never seen it because everybody sees it. A lot of people, I think, just deny it. Um, I never, I treat everybody the same personally. I don't care whether you're black, yellow, brown, green. Um, you get the same treatment from me that I would expect you to give back to me. Um, I did. I never saw, or I certainly heard, but I never witnessed any of the correctional staff, either provincially or federally, treat um, non-whites different. Even even the um, the Canadian natives um, were treated with respect in the federal system that I met. They had their own. Um, one of the houses on the in the facility I was in was inhabited strictly by natives. Um, they had their own uh, their own facilities that they could use to go and do their sweats, as they call them. Um, so no, I, I I didn't witness it myself, and I certainly wouldn't have participated in it had I seen it. And what was the first part of your question? I talked about the second part. What was the first part of your question? 
This is not a skill testing question to see if you remember. No, we want others to be inspired by your stories. If you want to share your story at why you were incarcerated and how you managed uh, throughout that um, case, then uh, it could be an inspiration for others. Okay. Um, I was at a very low place in my life in 2009, 2010. Everything was going against me. That's my 2009, 2010 version. The 2021 version will tell you, me sitting here today will tell you that a lot of things were going against me because that's the way I directed them. Mm. Um, I was very, very self-centered. If something went wrong, it was not my fault. It was somebody else's fault. Um, if I couldn't have something I wanted, it was not my fault. It was somebody else's fault. Um, had I not had that attitude, I probably wouldn't have done what I did. Um, I mentioned earlier about uh, the hierarchy in prison. I don't want to get into too many details, only because it's painful for me to relive them. And trust me when I say this to you, I relive them every day. You can't escape them. There are times where I'm sitting trying to be peaceful and what I did and the ramifications of what I did um, pop back into my head. Unlike my computer where I can erase stuff, you can't do that in your mind and it keeps popping back up when you least expect it to. Um, I will tell you that I didn't um, physically harm anybody. Uh, anybody that I was involved in were willing participants. I didn't force myself on anyone, but some of the things I did were contrary to the law because of um, who I was involved with. I know that's very generic, but I hope you're okay with that. No, that's, I think that's fine, Mike. You don't have to share more than you feel comfortable yes, Thank sharing. you. We're happy for that, yes. I think um, I would ask a, a question then. If you could go back, and, and I think you started <laughs> to answer the question, if you could go back to 2009, what, um, what could have, I mean, I don't want to answer the question, but what, what could have you told yourself or what could have somebody said to you that maybe would have changed the focus? I don't think anybody could have told, said anything to me to change my focus because I probably wouldn't have listened to them, to be honest. Um, I would have probably said, no, you can't. That can't be right. It, I'm not the problem. Can't be me. Um, however, if the me of today could talk to the me of then, um, beyond a good slap upside the face, as the expression goes, to wake me up. Um, the me of today would would guide me away from a lot of the choices I made and, and hopefully would wake me up to the fact that I was being very self-centered. I was being very self-serving. Um, anything, that, anything that happened that was good, I earned. Mm -hmm. Anything that happened that was bad was somebody else's fault. I say that with tongue in cheek because that was the attitude then. When I say I earned it, in a lot of cases I did, but probably earned was a bad choice of words. Probably deserved was, would have been a better choice. Anything good that happened, I deserved. That was my thinking. Yeah. A lot of stuff I earned um, through my own, not blood, but sweat and tears. Um, anything good that happened, um, I now know where most of that came from. And he's watching this conversation. Uh, and we talked about him a while ago when I said I found my way back to him while I was incarcerated. So as I wish I could, sorry, I wish I could talk to me back then because the, the bad news, Julianne, is you and I would have never have met. Mm. Yes, lovely. 
So that's a, a, a form of narcissism that a lot of people are dealing with. Uh, do you have any advice for people out there who will be listening to this of how they can uh, stay on the straight and narrow when they leave prison? Sorry, stay on the street. Sorry, stay on the streets and what? Stay on the straight and narrow. Oh, straight and narrow. Af after incarceration. Oh, okay. After incarceration? Oh, goodness. Um, I always found, I, I was baffled when people would get released from prison on parole and then end up coming back because they breached the terms of their parole. I could never understand that. Um, you work hard when you're in prison to, to be granted parole. And then you, and the restrictions are not that difficult. Uh, I still have certain restrictions, even though parole is way, way behind me. Um, I still have certain restrictions imposed by the courts, uh, most of which don't affect me. I'm not allowed to have a firearm. I never used a firearm in my crime, I should mention. I'm not allowed to have explosives. I've never used those in my crime either. So I don't miss either one of them. That, those <laughs> restrictions were easy to live with. But the, the court system in Canada these days is taking every opportunity they can to ban people from using things like that, um, which is not a bad thing, unless you're an avid hunter, I suppose. Um, to stay on, to stay out on the streets and not get sent back to prison is not really that difficult. You are given a clear set of rules of what you can do and what you can't. All you have to do is follow them. Um, easier said than done for some people. I recognize that. If you're incarcerated because of something you did while you were intoxicated, be it with alcohol or drugs, you're going to have to stay away from those. I realize for some people that's going to be a major challenge. I am grateful that that was not my issue. Can't, can't blame that on my bad decisions. Um, I think all you can do is do the best you can to be the best person you can and follow the rules. Any of the parole officers I had, I had several while I was inside, um, two different ones, one at, one at the at Millhaven, one at the medium or sorry, the minimum facility that I was at. I had one when I was living at the halfway house in Toronto. Then I had another one when I lived in Barrie. Every one of them did everything they could to help me get out in the original two and with the other two to stay out. And they don't want to send you back to prison. They give you a clear set of rules and guidelines. All you got to do is follow them. And I realize I was blessed with the ability to be able to do that. Some people can't and try hard, try very, very hard because going back, I can't imagine going back. Mm -hmm. Going back would be worse than the first time around because you already know what it's going to be like. And it's not going to be any better because if you, um, if you breach your parole and get sent back again and you were a minimum security facility, the chances of going back to a minimum are not good because you have already shown your inability to follow rules and they trust you to put you in a, in a, a minimum security. I don't know why I keep struggling over a minimum medium, but anyway, I do. Um, they trust you. That's why they put you in a, in a minimum facility. And if you breach that trust, you're going to have a hard time getting going back to one and life is going to be more difficult for you. Thanks, again. Than uh, it was. Thanks, Mike. We really appreciate your sharing with us your story today. We have to wrap up. Uh, Julian will have the parting words and followed by Mike. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, this is our third episode of the One Love podcast, talking to members uh, who have had the experience of being incarcerated and what it was like. Thank you. 
Mike, I guess just one last question I had. I wonder if you could speak to you briefly, and I know we're wrapping it up, but um, <laughs> how important is it, do you think, to have friends, um, people that you can talk to that um, are aware of your past and don't hold that against you? Or do you think it's more important to have people that don't know anything about it and you can just start over and move forward? That's a very easy question because most all of the people I have met since I was released didn't know about my past. Some of them found out, as I said earlier, it's much, much easier for me personally to deal with somebody that knows of my past and has taken the time to talk to me about it. Because frankly, when I meet people that don't know about my past, running through my head while I'm conversing with them are two things. A, do they know? And B, how long is it going to be before they know? And I guess the third thing is how are they going to treat me after they find out? So my life is much easier when I'm sitting with friends that know, because I know that nothing out of the blue is going to come and, and ruin whatever we are doing, whether we're sitting having a coffee or a beer or something of that nature. It just It's much less stressful for me hanging around with people that know. Okay. That's what I was, I thought. So thank you for confirming that. Hopefully whoever's listening to that and to the podcast right now, you're listening to it because you you believe and you agree with what Mike said, you know, the name of our podcast is one love. And I think it is important that uh, when we're meeting with people that we're meeting with the entire person and that the support that we offer them is not contingent upon, you know, who they were before we met them. I think it's important that we, you know, look at who look the person in the eye that we're talking to today um, and realize that, you know, they come today with, with a past, with a story um, that might have some stuff in it that's not that great. But as Mike pointed out, um, you know, it's part of what made you who you are today, right? We wouldn't, you're right, Mike, we wouldn't have met if you hadn't have made that. So that's right. I'm, I'm not, I'm not thankful that you made that so that we could meet. But at the same time, I realized that you can't throw out one without losing all kinds of other good stuff. So and one of my just to, to my, my final thought, Julian, is one of my best friends says that he can't understand like I do, or like I can't why people who find out about my past, like first, first off, if you're going out with somebody and you meet them, who goes home and Googles them to find out what their past is? I found out a lot of people do that, apparently. I don't know why. Um, but my one of my best friends now says he deals with the me today because the me today is not the me from back then. There you have it. There you have it. And I'm grateful for that. And I know, I know who made me the me that I am today. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to the Lord every day. Thank God. Thank God. Thank, God. thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. It's been awesome talking to you and uh, for sharing your story. Thank you, Julianne. And um, this is our time up. Uh, shalom, shanti, sh salam, and peace with each and every one of you. We are grateful for those who share the stories with us. This is our path to humanity. Bye.